We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same. Rereading, rereading our favorite books. I don't think I mentioned this in the summary, but mm. I have to give this because I think this is of all the things that Mary says, this is probably the one that's most f***ed up. But when Tom is, like, potentially on his deathbed, she writes this letter to Fanny asking, like, have you had any news? I haven't heard anything. Like, what's up? And she is concerned, but she's also like, I don't want to mention it. Like, here's somebody that doesn't happen. But if he should pass, then the fortunes of Edmund, like, she's clearly thinking, you know, if Tom dies, Edmund becomes the heir. There's no way he's entering the clergy then. That clears all her objections, you know? And it's pretty clearly insinuated in the letter. And there's something so fascinating about that. It's fascinating about that and fascinating about her at the end and, and a couple other points where it's like, she's clearly like knows the ways of society. Like she knows she shouldn't be saying this, that she shouldn't, but like, okay, admittedly, everyone is going to potentially have those thoughts, those kind of thoughts. Like we're, none of us are perfect. Sometimes you have really awful, horrible thoughts. You just hopefully look at those thoughts and are, are like, oh my God, no, put that thought away. But like, she just hasn't had those sort of like training or the self-reflection or like understanding to be able to put that thought away. And so she, she writes it in a letter to Fanny. <laughs> she is a little at the whim of those thoughts. I don't know where I was going with this. I was going somewhere and then I lost it just because I was like, ah, oh, wasn't it f***ed <laughs> up when she died? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it was f***ed up. I love her. <laughs> it is funny, because I do think our our respective biases are uh, oh, yeah. rising up, because, like, obviously Henry is a womanizer, and that just rubs me the wrong way. And that's also apparently your literary type, is womanizing men. So <laughs> No, that's absolutely, absolutely not true. I actually don't tend to like womanizers. I but know, I was just joking. That said, <laughs> I do very much like sort of roguish characters. So, no, I'm not going to pretend like I don't have any biases coming into play when it comes to Henry Crawford. I'm actually not really into him on a personal level. I just think he's like very interesting. Well, he is five foot eight, apparently, which means he's ugly. <laughs> well, it is funny because, like, we are one, yeah, Tolty short. <laughs> and also that he's not very good looking. He's just extremely charismatic. And, a, you know, a natural sort of performer. He's He's got that, that showmanship. But, like, credits where credit's due to him falling in love with Fanny. Um, Because, like, you have to give that credit to the Crawfords as well. They both, we haven't really talked about Edmund yet, so let's let's put a pin in talking about Edmund, but they fall in love with good people. Again, that's, I think, something that's meant to make us understand that there's more to them than just, like, villainy. When it comes down to it, Henry Crawford doesn't fall in love with Mariah. He falls in love with Fanny. And again, it, it's real, genuine love. So, like, you can see sort of their better instincts at play there. But... Yes, obviously, uh, we have we have certain biases <laughs> when it comes to characters, and I'm more predisposed to be cool about Henry Crawford or find him interesting 
than you are. That said, I <laughs> have never wanted him to get together with Fanny. And I agree with you that I think it is such a like great, interesting thing that Jane Austen does in the back half of this book where she's like, I'm going to make them think that I'm going to have Fanny reform him. Right. I'm going to give you that that narrative and I'm going to make you think I'm going to go for it. Like credit to her that she made you look it up because there was a part of you that was that unsure because she really she really yeah. sells it. But like I love that it doesn't happen especially because of the acknowledgement that it could have potentially. I think I've literally brought up the Henry Crawford thing in another podcast because it's just something that sticks in my mind so hard. And I think part of it is that, like, from a sort of creative narrative perspective, sometimes we forget to think about what would happen if a character made another choice. Like, that's a full possibility. And having that other choice be brought up and then sort of shut down, I think, makes the story that much more interesting, especially if it feels like a real viable choice that might have happened. And I love that, like, Fanny sort of gets this, she gets put on her that she's this passive character, but, like, she makes that actual very real choice in the end. And, like, we buy that that is a real decision she is making that could have gone the other way. I just love that. I just love that. It's great. It's Henry's Smeagol Gollum moment where there there's this alternative <laughs> yes. story that could have worked out so much better certainly for him maybe not so much fanny well i'm sure we'll get more into this but there's a great line where it's something like edmund recognized that fanny was too good for him and he's like if she wants me and she's too good for me hell yeah like of course i'm gonna marry her (laughs) i appreciate austin acknowledging that I think what would have helped me with Henry specifically to appreciate that alternative more is if we saw a moment where he really had to consider his own character and really consider his own faults. And he did so in a meaningful way so that you could see, in fact, it was possible. Because the the thing is when he does consider his faults, quote unquote, It's always undermined by the fact that he's doing it not out of like any wish to improve himself, but basically to just try to play the game better, to try to win over Fanny and get her to say yes. Even a small moment, because like with Mrs. Norris, (laughs) Mrs. Norris is just an awful, awful person. Horrible. Irredeemable. Until we get to Portsmouth. And we're given this scene of like a family home that has 10 kids. The home is too small or maybe not 10 kids, but there's a lot of kids. It's a bad situation. And then (laughs) Jane Austen throws in this line about how Mrs. Norris would have been perfect for that situation because her kind of character of being extremely thrifty being extremely on top of everything, being like an extreme busybody would be perfect for a situation that required all of those things. So it you have that moment of acknowledging, yes, there are certain situations. If we saw Mrs. Norris in that kind of situation, we would think so much more differently 
about her. Maybe we we would still see her as a hard ass, but we would certainly, I think, respect her for being somebody who is giving her family the best chance to thrive with their limited means. Henry just doesn't have that moment for me. I, I'm curious to, if he has a moment like that for you. I think there is a moment that makes me go like, there is something, but I uh, I can't find it. I'm not going to be able to find it in time. <laughs> okay. No, I, I I agree that it's not like sort of this, the same way you're describing the moment with Mrs. Norris. <laughs> Although I do, I do also love that moment. I love the idea of characters sort of being in the wrong story. Like, that they would thrive in another story. It's great. <sighs> no, I don't, I don't want to, I can't summarize it well enough because I don't remember it clearly enough to, I guess it's more like the moment where uh, you were talking about with Edmund, which I, I did actually find, where, like, he acknowledges that Fanny is, <laughs> is too good for him. I think that the moment I'm thinking of with Henry is, is more of a moment where he seems to show, I remember him showing just the slightest bit of self-awareness um, mm. about what Fanny could could be for him. And I don't remember any particular words in it. It's just like one moment where you're like, oh, this guy actually sort of gets it a little bit. Like there's the slightest hint of self-reflection in there. But, bah, humbug. <laughs> I feel that's kind of fitting though, because... I think that's the challenge Austin is kind of giving us with this book, that it's very easy to remember terrible moments. It's easy to remember that Henry hit on two different sisters at the same time. Like, that's just gross. And then it's easy to remember <laughs> that he had an affair with one of those sisters. All those big moments stand out. It's the small moments that get lost in the shuffle because they're so easy to miss. But you know who doesn't miss them? Fanny! Fanny! <laughs> yes, Fanny's line about memory is iconic. And also, I think another sign signifier, like, Fanny is memory. She remembers. So... <laughs> uh, Morgan and I perhaps relied too much on the iconic status of this line that we just didn't even bother to quote it. But it is a fantastic quote, so I'm going to put it here for posterity's sake. <laughs> so Fanny is hanging out with Miss Crawford and they're walking around the park and she says this. This is pretty, very pretty, said Fanny, looking around her as they were thus sitting together one day. Every time I come into this shrubbery, I am more struck with its growth and beauty. Three years ago, this was nothing but a rough hedgerow along the upper side of the field, never thought of as anything, or capable of becoming anything. And now it is converted into a walk. And it would be difficult to say whether most valuable as a convenience or an ornament. And perhaps in another three years, we may be forgetting, almost forgetting what it was before. How wonderful, how very wonderful the operations of time and the changes of the human mind. And following the latter train of thought, she soon afterwards added, If any one faculty of our nature may be called more wonderful than the rest, I do think it is memory. There seems something more speakingly incomprehensible 
in the powers, the failures, the inequalities of memory than in any other of our intelligences. The memory is sometimes so retentive, so serviceable, so obedient, at others so bewildered and so weak, and at others again so tyrannic, so beyond control. We are, to be sure, a miracle every way. But our powers of recollecting and of forgetting do seem peculiarly past finding out. And that's it. I will say that as I'm searching for uh, Henry's line that I can't remember, I did find one bit of his that I also really like in regards to Fanny, because I think Fanny for me, yeah, is, is remembering things, but also noticing things. We've talked about her as an observer. And so much of this book is people not seeing things about each other and people performing and being blind to the other people performing, you know, all that. And Fanny sees like right through all that bullshit. But there is this part, and I think one of the things I like about Henry, Henry's interest in Fanny is that he talks about how he sees how neglected she's been and how unloved and underappreciated she's been and that he specifically wants to give her the consequence so justly her due. Like, obviously, <laughs> Finney doesn't really want consequence, so he doesn't truly understand her, but I do appreciate that he sees the wrongs that have been done to her and even at one point acknowledges the wrongs that he's done to her oh yeah he says uh so mary's kind of chastising him and she's like your wicked project upon her peace turns out a clever thought indeed you will both find your good in it and he says it was bad very bad in me against such a creature but i did not know her then and she shall have no reason to lament the hour that first put it into my head and then he talks about how he wants to make her very, very happy. <laughs> like, I think that is something that I, I do appreciate about his pursuit of her is that he recognizes, one, that she's like a really good person. Two, <laughs> that he was horrible to her. Three, that other people are horrible to her. And he really wants to make her happy <laughs> and take her away from the people that are horrible to her. I'm not saying he's a great person, but I am saying that his love for her is kind of admirable in what he's attempting to do with it in some ways. It's not all about him. He's not spending this this saying, like, she's going to do so much for me. He's saying, I will make her very happy, Mary, happier than she has ever yet been herself or ever seen anybody else. And he later says... Yes, Mary, my Fanny will feel a difference, indeed a daily, hourly difference in the behavior of every being who approaches her, and it will be the completion of my happiness to know that I am the doer of it, that I am the person to give the consequence so justly her due. So, like, his happiness is her happiness. I just, I just really love that. <laughs> like, he absolutely fails. He sucks at it. <laughs> but, like, that is kind of, this is his big confession scene, and that that's, that's what's coming out of him. I do really appreciate and like. I wish I could find that other line I was thinking of before, but I'm glad I found this in the meanwhile. There is a line, I think it's in that same section, where it's him being arrogant. But to give credit to your argument, because he says, it's like his Heathcliff moment of, he says like, what can mm. Sir Thomas and Edmund do for her? How can that compare to what I yes. shall do? Okay, do you want me to read it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mary's like, she hasn't been forgotten by everyone because he's just railing against how no one pays attention to her. 
She's like, her cousin Edmund never forgets her. Um, and then he says, Edmund, true, I believe he is, generally speaking, kind to her. And so is Sir Thomas in his way, but is the way of a rich, superior, long-worded, arbitrary uncle. What can Sir Thomas and Edmund together do? What do they do for her happiness, comfort, honor, and dignity in the world to what I shall do? And to be fair, he's been right. <laughs> I mean, he's not right in that he can do better because he fails. But he's right in that, like, pin in the Edmund thing. But, like, Edmund, you know, he does things for Fanny. But, like, we see her multiple times in this book get neglected because he's like, wow, Mary's really hot. Yeah. He takes away her horse from her. Oh, my God. The whole horse yeah. thing is horrible. And then there's this one moment where, like, he and Fanny are, like, looking at the stars. And Fanny's reminiscing about how they are used to stargaze. And he's like, yeah, we should do that again. And Fanny's like... Yay. And then Mary starts playing her harp and he's like, in a little. And then he just goes off and hangs out with Mary. He loves Fanny, but he doesn't really appreciate her fully until the end of the book. I think he still thinks of her as sort of this person he has to watch over, but he's also not doing a very good job of that because he's distracted by his own sh- And it's not until the end of the book that he kind of fully realizes she's a grown person in her own right who is quite frankly, like, more observant, more understanding of the general human condition, more (laughs) committed everything than him. And I appreciate that Henry sees that. I'm glad you reminded me of that scene, because I think that was the first time it obviously got overshadowed. And I think my, my anxiety with the latter half of the book really drove any kind of appreciation for henry out but that was the scene where i was like he not only does he see fanny for the like it seemingly for the first time for any character in this book but he recognizes the way everyone else is overlooking her there's a sense of potential that like okay maybe there's something to henry that we haven't seen yet of course, his behavior after that just kind of confirms any suspicions you had. But there's at least a moment of recognition. And and I think as we've established, especially with the character of Fanny, recognition and awareness is very, very important. Mm-hmm. So that's that is the first step to anything. It's just being aware of whatever. And yes, when he says, like, what the f- can Sir Thomas and Edmund do? For her, he is a f***ing bastard in that moment, but <laughs> he is right, and I would argue he's correct in more ways than just money, because I think that's the implication yes. that as a rich man, he can do more for her status. But I do think Edmund in comparison to Henry is just such a f***ing wet blanket. He is not... <laughs> In a lot of ways, it feels like she doesn't see it this way. But in a lot of ways, to me, it feels like Fanny settled for Edmund. I just don't see what Edmund brings to that relationship that will encourage Fanny to to improve herself in the way that like Mary and Edmund, I think, would have been a good match because they would have sort of butted heads and. Fanny and Edmund are just kind of too much in lockstep to really grow from each other. And I think that Henry, I mean, this is all very speculatory, 
But I do think that Henry, being such an outspoken person, could provide that push to Fanny to speak up herself. Because Fanny is smart. And Fanny should speak up. Like, there's that moment that that's so funny where it's Henry and Edmund are having a conversation and Henry is saying something yes. like, I could be a, I could be a minister. I think I could do it well enough, but then I'm too lazy. I, I could only make myself give like two or three sermons a year. And Fanny sort of under her breath responds like, no, she doesn't even say anything. She just no, shakes she, her head. She shakes her head a little. Yeah. And then he instantly notices, wait, I'm on the page. <laughs> So, yeah, here Fanny, who could not but listen, involuntarily shook her head, and Crawford was instantly by her side again, entreating to know her meaning. And he just sits there, and then he's, like, trying to get her to say, and um, the dialogue is like, What did that shake of the head mean? said he. What was it meant to express? Disapprobation, I fear. But of what? What I have been saying to displease you? Did you think me speaking improperly? Lightly? Irrelevantly on the subject? Only tell me if I was. Only tell me if I was wrong. I want to be set right. Nay, nay, I entreat you. For one moment, put down your work. What did that shake of the head mean? And then Fanny's just like, please, please, no. And then, blah, blah, do I astonish you? He, so he keeps bothering her, and then she's like, uh, you quite astonish me. And he's like, do I astonish you? Do you wonder? Is there anything my present entreaty that you don't do not understand? I will explain it to you instantly. <laughs> all that makes me urge you in this manner, all that gives me an interest in what you look into and excites my present curiosity. I will not leave you to wonder long. In spite of herself, she could not help half a smile, but she said nothing. You shook my head at my acknowledging that I should not like to engage in the duties of a clergyman always for constancy. Yes, that was the word. Constancy. I'm not afraid of that word. I would spell it, read it, write it with anybody. I see nothing alarming in the word. Do you think I ought? Perhaps, sir, said Fanny, wearied at last into speaking. Perhaps, sir, I thought it was a pity you did not always know yourself as well as you seemed to do in that moment. <sighs> Who else would have gotten Fanny to admit that out loud right yes. there? Yes. Not saying he should have taken no for an answer, but like one of the things that's it's brought up in that those the couple of paragraphs um, at the end where it talks about what might have been is it specifically said that if he had had stuck with it, she uh, would he have persevered and uprightly. Fanny must have been his reward. I hate that word, but whatever. And a reward very voluntarily bestowed. So like. You can imagine in a situation where Fanny did actually love him, that his constant encouragement, her, his attentiveness to her moods, mm. like, because I do think he has it within him to have that sort of observantness, observantness? Wow, that's not a word. <laughs> but you know what I mean. He has that same ability as Fanny to look and understand. Without her saying anything, he's able to get down to it. The constancy specifically was what she shook her head at. Right. He noticed the head shake. He delved down, he figured it out, and then he's able to encourage her to speak. And you can imagine in a relationship where she's not being badgered into this, that he would encourage her to be more outspoken, be a little bit more outgoing. So I I know you said at the beginning that you, you didn't really see them as compatible at all, but I, I do think they could have been if he was willing to change. I think you're you're steering me around to your side of things. Like, even him responding at the end to Mariah giving him the cold shoulder at the end and him responding like I must fix this the way that scene's described Mariah doesn't say anything but Henry can just 
pick up on the energy. Mm -hmm. So he has that that sense of observation of seeing what's happening, how characters are feeling, what's really going on. The difference is that he uses that power for evil. (laughs) 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 And that's something that theoretically, if he got with Fanny, that could be corrected. Because, yes, that scene is ridiculous. He keeps badgering her to give an opinion. But he's on the right track in that moment. There's a way that they could have developed their relationship where he wouldn't have to badger her for her opinion he could just come to a place of like i want to hear what you think please tell me and i think you even see what that could have looked like that moment that we referenced in their final meeting where he's asking her what he should do at his estate and she Mm. you know is very calmly happy to give him an answer you could see if they were in you know (laughs) not in front of her entire family, (laughs) that she could, she would feel, if she was comfortable with him and really did love him, she would feel free to to give him her opinions the way she does Edmund and the way that you start seeing her do again with Edmund at the end. Because I think there's a for a while there when he's really infatuated with Mary. You don't really see her giving her opinions much to Edmund as she does in the beginning. Because she just doesn't, there's not the same trust between them. But at the end, after he confides in her about what happens to Mary, and they kind of, it's mentioned that he, at the beginning, is like, we'll talk about it once and then never talk about it again. But actually, they continue discussing this for many days on end. <laughs> because people are always like that. They're like, I just want to get this off my chest and then never again. And right. it's like, no, you're going to be talking about this for the rest of all time. That's not how these things work. But um, she starts being able to point out to him some things he maybe missed in the past and help him come to terms more with everything because she's finally able to start trusting him and talking to him again. And you talked about like what can Edmund do for Fanny going forward. And I agree that other than the love and and security of a partnership in which, you know, both sides truly respect each other, what you see is that it sort of becomes a not repayment, because I also hate that, but like he's the one who originally nurtured her and helped her. And now He's come to sort of his time of of moral crisis, and she's able to return that favor. And because of that, there's this balance and respect between them. Again, I don't... I think I mentioned this also in the Pride and Prejudice. I absolutely did mention this in the Pride and Prejudice episode, but it works. But, like, this idea of the sort of more romantic marriage versus the uh, companionate marriage... And absolutely, like, Henry is the romantic suitor and (laughs) Edmund is sort of the more companionate one. I think that it absolutely works within the structure of this book for Fanny to end up with Edmund. Because, like, that's what she wants. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know. And, like, as much as I think it's cool that there's this possibility that she could have ended up with Henry, I also think that no means no, and he should have backed off. But there's nothing wrong with it with a companion marriage, but I, like you said, don't really see Edmund and Fanny helping each other grow past this point. I think that they've, once they get together, they've both done the helping each other grow, and they've helped each other grow to the extent where they have grown into people who will be very good companions for the rest of their lives. And that's great. And nothing wrong with that, but I, I don't think that it's a, it's a marriage that promises more improvement, you know, whereas I think like 
the nice thing about Lizzie and Darcy is you see them help each other grow throughout the book, but you also know that that's something that will be ongoing when they get married in the end that you don't necessarily get with Fanny and Edmund, especially because, like, yeah, Edmund's just not not the most exciting. I like him fine. (laughs) I have nothing against him. But I also don't particularly, like, you know, I don't want to hang out with Edmund. I would love to hang out with Fanny. Like, I would love to, like, have a nice girl spa day. <laughs> like, I want to I take care of her. Like, you know, I don't really want to do anything with Edmund. I don't really care about him. It is kind of unfortunate. But I also really think, and I think you get this by the fact that, like, Edmund and Fanny getting together is in the epilogue and we never see anything on screen. And it's not, like, it's definitely not the point of this book. Whereas I think in Pride and Prejudice, the romance is absolutely like that's the main story. But I think the main story here is about this family coming into conflict with the Crawfords and how that sort of reveals the hidden cracks and issues within the family and reshuffles everyone's understanding of the family and themselves. I think that's the story of Mansfield Park, which is why it, the last sort of narrated bit of like full story is Edmund and Mary's breakup, essentially. After that, it kind of goes into epilogue mode. Yeah, because the Crawfords are the catalysts. Yes. Without them, there is no reaction. There's no uh, chemical response. Edmund and Fanny are like, and like, and the one thing I appreciate about this book is that in Pride and Prejudice, Elizabeth ending up with Darcy is obviously the best outcome. And like, I know you use the the term happily ever after to describe Edmund and Fanny. And I and I think that they'll be happy enough, but I it's not a bad romance. It's perfectly fine. And many people would be lucky to have that kind of relationship. But there there's nothing more to it. It's the safe marriage. Marrying Henry, it has a high ceiling, but an extremely low floor. <laughs> yeah. It could have been something that would be on par with an Elizabeth and Darcy, but it could have also been like, because we see so many bad marriages in this book. Oh, yeah. And we see so many examples of people that are ill suited for each other and just basically get to a point where they hate each other. So there definitely was a potential if Henry and Fanny, both of them, were not willing to change through their relationship, it would be bad news. And they would end up like one of those loveless marriages that we see throughout this book. But man, that potential. Uh, I think that's like, I know I just keep saying this, but I, I feel like part of it is just that like, I love this so much, but it's, it is that like the knowledge of that potential that then just makes the ending so somehow like much more satisfying. There's something about, like, that epilogue, especially, I think, because, you know, the wrap-up of of Edmund and Fanny is not necessarily the most glamorous thing, but it's, like, that you get a peek into this alternate universe for a second before before the doors are closed. For me, it's, I think, also, like, a little validating in a way. Again, I've never rooted for her and Henry. Like, I know this, I know everything about this makes it sound like I do. I do not. I have always just been like, yeah, Fanny getting validated <laughs> because the person I'm rooting for is Fanny, first and foremost. So I just want her to get everything she wants. So 
I'm very happy for her and Edmund. Because that's what Fanny wants, and she deserves it. (laughs) But, like, the power of getting to see that potential for just a second there, and then seeing that door, like, just solidly closed, ah, it's good. I know you jokingly said that Fanny deserves everything. And I and I think that's an interesting thing here in this book, that the question of deserving gets brought up multiple times. Mm, yes. You know, Henry explicitly says, I deserve Fanny. It's described how Fanny is, uh, would be Henry's reward. Similar language is used for Edmund to describe Fanny for Edmund. And this idea of, of deserving... Which, I mean, I think part of it's just, it's the product of the language at the time, of romances Mm. at the time. So it's not necessarily Jane Austen making some larger, grander point. But I do think that that is part of (laughs) modern readers' consternation, I guess, with this book. Is that Fanny, you could interpret Fanny just kind of limply going along with... (laughs) whatever Edmund desires and just like sitting a while around waiting for Edmund to to be like oh I've now finally noticed you let's get hitched it's not as satisfying especially if you're like reading Mm -hmm. because I think a big part of romance is is that they're escapism uh, escapism and Fanny doesn't really allow you to escape into anything. She's in that sense, she's not no. a compelling character. The amount of like guilt and stuff she feels and worry and anxiety throughout mm-hmm. this book is not escapist. Yeah. But it is there's an irony. Okay, so there's this one line that happens early on in the book that I love so much. It is possibly my favorite line from the book. <laughs> this is after Mariah has gone and engaged with Mr. Rushworth and Henry is in town and Julia, the younger sister, recognizes that by process of elimination, she then deserves Henry. And it, the book describes it as such. Miss Bertram's engagement made him, meaning Henry, in equity the property of Julia, of which Julia was fully aware. And before he had been at Mansfield a week, she was quite ready to be fallen in love with. That is a horrific sentence, but it is so perfect to describe just this like incredible, unthinking passivity. But the irony here is that Fanny is kind of doing the same thing. She is waiting to be fallen in love with from Edmund. But we're being told that Fanny is super thoughtful. Thoughtful. We should be respecting her opinion because she's the only one who like really considers her opinion. But she's still nonetheless falling into the same trap that Julia has fallen into here. I'm not saying that's necessarily how I interpret it, but I can see where right. people's problems come with Fanny because she, especially like... In my head canon, Fanny like <laughs> runs away to China and is happy and maybe she meets a man or maybe she just gets some great girlfriends or maybe she just befriends a very nice horse and just rides around on her horse all the time. 
<laughs> but <laughs> but like ending up with Edmund is just like it's such a letdown for me <laughs> because I just don't uh. I don't like Edmund as a as a character. I don't think he's interesting. I don't think he is nearly as profound as he thinks he is or the the novel wants us to think he is his whole idea of like yeah clergymen should be good oh wow great job edmund <laughs> he is so uninteresting but i guess that's where the, the to get back to the point of deserving i guess is that mm. this book isn't really about what anyone deserves I think in a more traditional romance, Mary, for the iniquity of of being an opinionated woman, would end up in much worse circumstances. But like you said, her status quo remains more or less the same. Like she isn't actively harmed. Like she's lost out on marrying Edmund, which is sad. But otherwise, she's okay. And I think that's the case for a lot of other characters where what they deserve isn't actually what necessarily happens. And I think that's a point to take away that we can get so caught up on this idea of like, you deserve this, that person deserves that, that we lose sight of like, well, life doesn't really <laughs> work that way. Life isn't fair. And you see, I think you name dropped her in the summary, but didn't explain who she, uh, Susan, who is uh, Fanny's oh, yeah. younger sister, who... <laughs> It's just the funniest character. Yeah, she... <laughs> what is her point? <laughs> well, actually, I love Susan because she, to me, she's like a reflection of the idea of nature versus nurture where yes. she embodies these good traits, but they've been curtailed by her living situation of, of living in this home of nine children, living in a poor household, and... What she deserves is to get out, and she does, in fact, get out, I guess. But it's just the idea that it's mere circumstance that she got out. But by all means, she was likely just to spend the rest of her, uh, at least, young life there at home. Anyway, I, I've lost track of what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Wait, okay. So I had, like, multiple thoughts and response, so I'm going to try and be coherent about this. Okay. You went through a lot of things I really wanted to comment on. So let's see if I can do this. I believe in you. I also wanted to talk about this as a romance novel and escapism. Because, I mean, I still don't consider it a romance novel in any way, shape, or form. But I think the escapist fantasy that is happening does have to do, weirdly enough, with the deserving thing. And it's about Fanny getting everything she deserves. Uh-huh. Like I mentioned earlier, as a kid, I think that there's something... I mean, Fanny's very dutiful. Fanny puts up with a lot of shit because she feels she is obligated to do so. And I think what a lot of people don't give Fanny credit for and what I think is undervalued, they're like, God, she's just, you know, a doormat. She never stands up for herself, etc. Which is not like putting it into perspective that she was torn away from her home at 10 years old, raised constantly being told that she is lesser, that she should be grateful that And then this is reinforced when she's older, that that can be taken away from her at any point in time. So, like, she's this unnaturally quieter person who is also extremely downtrodden and doesn't isn't appreciated the way that, again, it's hard to think of another way to put this, the way that she deserves to uh -huh. be appreciated. She's just not 
yeah, people just don't appreciate her. So the fantasy of Fanny and the escapist part of Fanny is that you go through all these struggles with her and you see her have to deal with so much, including, you know, being the go-between for the man she's in love with and his sort of girlfriend, being berated, cut down, just totally, like, denigrated for refusing to marry a man who led both of her cousins on, being forced away from her home, exiled, essentially, and, like, you go through all that with her, and then in the end, she gets, she gets to be truly appreciated, and she gets to be, she gets everything she wants, and you're like, like, that's the fantasy? is like, and I think especially for, for me at least, I've always had a very strong sense of, like, duty, obligation, politeness, to a certain extent. Like, I have a lot of strong thoughts about manners. And so I think part of why Jane Austen is appealing to me in general is that, like, this is a society of, of in which manners are very highly placed. And obviously, at this point, a lot of them are antiquated, and I don't agree with them anymore. But I agree with the general sense that, like, we have sort of an obligation to follow societal norms in certain ways, specifically certain ways, and be polite to each other. Mm-hmm. And we have a duty towards certain people in our lives that we have to fill regardless of whether or not it's what we want to do, regardless of whether or not, quite frankly, they deserve it. Now, I'm not saying like this is a total complete thing. I'm also a very large proponent of cutting toxic people out of your life. There are limits. But, you know, like, I think this is very much eldest child syndrome on my part, but I'm like, (laughs) I have to do certain things. For me, like, my situation is nothing like Fanny's, obviously, but, like, her struggles to, like, you know, she has so many times where she's like, this person did something really nice for me, but I also really dislike them, and I feel guilty about that. Those sort of struggles of, like, dealing with how to, people you really don't respect or trust but like they're being kind to you or they're doing something for you and you feel obligated towards them. That sort of thing is something I can really empathize with at least. And like, again, getting to see her be vindicated, getting to see her throw off those toxic relationships, getting to see her end up with a guy that she wants to be with. And I should mention also, um, in reference to your your sort of devil's advocate uh, point about how Fanny's just kind of waiting around to be fallen in love with. I think that part of why... It it doesn't feel like that to me, is that she never expects Edmund to fall in love with her. Throughout the whole thing with Mary Crawford, she hates it. Mostly, well, there's a lot of reasons why she hates it, but a large part is that she just doesn't think Edmund sees who Mary truly is and will therefore be unhappy. But it's not like she's like, oh, if only he wasn't infatuated with Mary, he'd notice me. Like, she has no expectation of him turning to her. She doesn't think I deserve him and I should have him, in contrast to many of the other characters in this novel. And so her quote unquote reward is getting him even when she didn't expect to ever have him. So I think that is the fantasy and the wish fulfillment of Mansfield Park (laughs) is that sort of, yeah, Cinderella moment. She struggled. And she worked so hard, and she got it all. The man, the house, the family. <laughs> and I think that's why, like, really the romance isn't the main point. The main point is is Fanny, Fanny's vindication. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it, you're right when when you earlier said that the the climax of this book is when Fanny says no to Henry. Specifically, you said when she says no to Henry when Edmund brings it up. Like, we, as the reader, feel that vindication. Anyway, I also would disagree with my devil's advocate because I think they're... You're right. Uh, the idea of expectation with Fanny, if anything, if she does have an expectation, it's the opposite, that she will not end up with Edmund. There are like some lines that I thought were very moving, where she kind of mm. did this mental preparation for the new, like especially in the yes. latter ha half of the book, when she knows the news is going to come, or she thinks she knows the news is going to come, that Edmund and Mary are going to get hitched. There's this one line in particular. It was a subject which she must learn to speak of, and the weakness that shrunk from it would soon be quite unpardonable. Like, it's a very simple line, but it's just so moving to me of, like, the strength of character to acknowledge that the person you love is... You're not going to end up with that person. Fanny isn't afraid to face hard realities. And I think that's the difference between her and a character like Julia or any of the other characters is that everyone else tries their best to avoid facing reality. And Fanny is the only one who d does that sort of mental preparation. And it's an admirable trait and sets her apart. And so, yeah, in terms of the narrative, she indeed does deserve a happy ending because she has done the work. Mm. Her labor is rewarded. And God, has she done so much work. <laughs> the amount of emotional labor this woman has done. I worked so hard to get here, pushing myself until it hurt. Oh, one small point I also did want to make mm. about Edmund. I think this is from like the beginning of your... My rant. Yes. <laughs> I believe he's one of Jane Austen's uh, youngest heroes, for lack of a better word. <laughs> I believe he's only like 24, 23 or 24. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, most of her heroes are older. And I do think this contributes to his story because I do think almost all Jane Austen's heroes have to learn. Well, they all have to learn a little bit or <laughs> some more than others. Yeah. But I think that Edmund comes off one of the worst because he has some of the most to learn. I think Edmund starts off this book being very... I saw a really good um, and interesting comparison of Mansfield Park and Emma, where it was basically like Emma is a gender-swapped Mansfield Park in a weird way hmm. in terms of the dynamics of the characters, where in Emma, the title character Emma, starts off very confident and sure in herself she believes she is, like, very, you know, morally upstanding, like, she's well-placed in society, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then she has to learn throughout the book about the errors of her ways and how she's been mistaken in people and mistaken in her judgment. And I think that Edmund starts off very much the same way. Like, he is the responsible one. <laughs> in the family, he is 
of his civilians, he's the one who kind of like helps deal with things after his father leaves. And his father feels safe going because he knows everything will be in Edmund's hands. And he's kind of the arbiter of uh, his father's judgment. And he is very confident in his own opinions. Fanny will bring this up occasionally, be like, well, don't you think? And he'll be like, ah, no. (laughs) It's fine. (laughs) It's not fine. (laughs) And so, like, he truly has to be, I mean, I think we leave him before the epilogue. The last that we really see him speak, he's been just sort of totally emotionally shattered. All of his preconceptions have been destroyed. I think part of that is because he is he is very young. If you think about it, this is his first like trial, you know, great trial in life. And he's failed. He fails this trial. <laughs> like he doesn't fail horribly. Like he doesn't like, you know, actually marry Mary, but he certainly doesn't succeed. He 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 trips up. And I do think that it is important to note his youth and that this this story, I also saw a couple of scholars made the great point that this is the only book in which we see, or Jane Austen book in which we see the heroine as a young child for not very long, but for a little bit. And so I feel like this is, you know, in some ways also a coming of age book for both Fanny and Edmund as they're trying to figure out who they're going to be as adults and their relationship shifts as they become adults because they realize that Edmund's not infallible. Yeah. And that Fanny is, has good judgment and can be equally a resource for him. I I do think it's just important to point that out, to be fair to Edmund. Like I, like I said, I have no great particular affection for him. I don't find him particularly compelling as a character, but I do think that his age plays somewhat into how things go down and is important to note. Because who hasn't been stupid at 24? (laughs) People who haven't been 24 yet. (laughs) I mean, you knew me at 24. Was I not an idiot? (laughs) No comment. Next question. Did you know me at 24? No. No. So you you didn't get to see my most idiotic moments, I guess. Yeah. So I would have met you after being 24 because I was I was 21 when we met huh I always forget how young you are (laughs) no I it's not like Edmund's at its core his impulse to fall in love with Mary isn't the worst one because we've done a lot of apologizing for Mary in this this (laughs) podcast we have (laughs) and I think we both agreed that there is something of quality in her. Yes, she's apparently very hot or whatever, but I I think it speaks to he he recognizes good qualities. The the problem is that he believes a little too wholeheartedly in those good qualities. Mm-hmm. And you know what? He's not the only one to do that. In some ways, Fanny does the same thing with Edmund. Yeah, Edmund's been very, very kind to Fanny. So it's not exactly unwarranted, but sometimes sometimes it's excessive, I guess. There's this great quote that I love so much and had me just careening around the room in love with Fanny. <laughs> I I just related so hard. But there's this line where she got... 
I'm actually blanking on the context, but I know she's just gotten this letter from Edmund and she's starting to to read. And it's like a very short letter, like comically short. But Fanny thinks to herself this. Two lines more prized had never fallen from the pen of the most distinguished author. Never more completely blessed the researches of the fondest biographer. The enthusiasm of a woman's love is even beyond the biographer's. To her, meaning Fanny, the handwriting itself, independent of anything it may convey, is a blessedness. Never were such characters cut by any other human being as Edmund's commonest handwriting gave. This specimen, written in haste as it was, had not a fault, and there was a felicity in the flow of the first four words, in the arrangement of my very dear Fanny, which she could have looked at forever. Don't get me wrong. I love letters. I love receiving letters. If I got a letter from someone that's very dear to me, friend or romantic or whatever, this would be my reaction. It would just be the dearest thing to me. But rein it in, lady. Like, this is, <laughs> this is a two-line letter this dude has sent to you, and you are treating it like it's the word of God. Uh, and so I think that's part of her growth, is to realize, okay, maybe Edmund isn't actually perfect, and I should measure my response a bit. So yes, in defense of Edmund, he's young, he's impressionable. He's got a good nature. He just hasn't quite refined the other qualities that would keep himself in check. Because I think it's not so much that he doesn't see the flaws. It's just that he doesn't really know what to do about them. So he just willfully ignores them. And the thing with Edmund, too, I think, going back to the nature versus nurture thing, because he's really the one who I think brings it into the story the most, because he talks so often. He, too, is a very apologist. And he's like, well, it's just because of the way she was raised, like mm. her horrible uncle and her aunt and her. She's naturally good, but it's her, it's her horrible upbringing that has her like this and separated from those influences. Everything will be solved. And he's kind of blind to the fact that, like, I don't deny, again, that her the way she and Henry were raised has a lot to do with with what went down. In fact, I think. I think Jane agrees with me as she literally describes Henry as uh, Henry Crawford, ruined by early independence and bad domestic example, indulged in the freaks of a cold-blooded vanity a little too long. So she very much puts it on the, the nurture side, too. But that said, it's very hard to nurture something that does not exist at least a little bit in someone's nature. I'm not saying it absolutely cannot be done. But these elements of both Mary and Henry were there to begin with, and it's just that their upbringing brought out a lot of the worst in them. Like, Edmund is always putting the blame away from Mary. Like, he takes her agency away from her. Mm -hmm. He doesn't accept that these are, she's making these choices. He's always just like, ah, oh, it's her abominable upbringing. If it weren't for that aunt and uncle and blah, blah, blah. But... He doesn't seem to understand that, like, she is continuing to make these choices. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't seem to appreciate her ability to do things. So, 
that's also very young of him in many ways. And I mean, it makes sense for his big first love. He's like, she's perfect. It's just everything else that's bad. (laughs) You know? (laughs) It's not a problem with her. Uh And of course, everything will fix itself once she is removed from all of that. Leaving aside that she's already kind of been removed from it, Edmund. Right. You stupid boy. He has the audacity. You know what killed it for me is that he had the audacity to say that the loss of Mary would be just as bad as the loss of Fanny. He obviously he doesn't have the benefit of reading this book, but (laughs) 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 how dare he? Yeah. I do really quickly, there are a number of other things I wanted to touch on, and we've been going a while, so I want to make sure we hit them. Because as much as I love talking about the Crawfords and Fanny, I, I do think it's important to acknowledge some of the other bits of the book, which is that, one, I just, I would be remiss not to acknowledge this. Uh, I don't have much to say because I'm not a scholar in these areas, mm. but Mansfield is also notorious for being the book that I believe in like Jane Austen land has the most references to the slave trade and to slavery. Sir Thomas goes off to his plantation in Antigua. That plantation is almost certainly has slaves working it pretty much. That's at a hundred percent probability. Um, so at this point in England, the slave trade was outlawed, but they were still allowed to own slaves, which is a, weird thing that I think most people don't realize that the outlaw of the slave trade came far before outlawing actual slavery. So that was the thing. So there's that. The slave trade actually gets mentioned. Fanny literally brings it up and asks about it. Yeah. I believe that is the only mention, like the only time the word slave is actually mentioned in Jane Austen, I believe is that reference. So a lot of work has been done thinking about this as a text in which slavery is very much operating in the background. Sir Thomas's wealth is pretty much entirely fueled by slavery. Edward Said, I believe, has a very influential essay on it. I could not find that essay. I could not get access to it via my university library. So apologies for not being able to give you more informed opinions. But I know there's a lot of work on it out there if anyone wants to look for it. Jane Austen herself... It is believed to, like, her brother was, I believe, an abolitionist, and she certainly read abolitionist texts. So that is believed to be her personal leanings, but um, there are a lot of people who see the fact that she wrote this novel and explicitly had Sir Thomas as a slave owner, as sort of the head of the household, and that he is not one of the ones who gets a bad ending. Yeah. (laughs) You know, a lot of readers see it as a sort of, passive okayness with slavery Mm. that said there's also sort of the other reading which is that i I think i kind of glanced at this earlier because i think my my reading would lean more towards this side although i i do agree i don't quite know what to make of austin's decision to to have the whole antigua plotline be a big thing but i would argue and other people have, that, like, Mansfield Park, the family structure at Mansfield Park is shown to be corrupt before the Crawfords even get there. Sir Thomas is not a good head of household. He does not encourage his children to actually come to him with their problems. And we see all the flaws in each of those four children. 
And especially, I think we see the flaws in this sort of purposeless, upper-class life that basically all of them but Edmund are indulging in. And and to this point, Edmund is as well. He's just, in the future, going to have an actual profession. And I think we're meant to understand that this this structure is inherently not good and unstable. But I, I would agree that this is not, like, explicitly tied to the whole slavery in the background bit. I... I'm not in a position <laughs> to like, <laughs> I just don't have sort of the academic knowledge to like fully unravel that. But it, it is a thing that is there. Indeed. I honestly kind of wish it wasn't because I do feel like after Fanny mentions it, it never gets brought up again. Because the context that it's get, that it gets brought up in, is it Edmund? Somebody is telling Fanny she should speak up more. And she's like, I did. I talked about slavery at this dinner and nobody said anything. (laughs) Why I don't like its inclusion here. It's just there to be like, only Fanny is brave enough to speak up on it. Let's clap for her. (laughs) Clap for Fanny, the white privileged woman who has the the bravery to say that slavery is bad well done please clap but i will say that i am inclined to agree that it's not jane austen saying like ah slavery's fine i i think that's a total misread of the character of sir thomas as you've said he's a horrible head of household we are supposed to see this character as extremely flawed and so it stands to reason that we would interpret him owning slaves as also an indictment of his character. Yeah, we're just show that his judgment is totally wrong. I mean, and he comes to that conclusion too in the end, not in regards to slavery. But, you know, in terms of everything else, like he absolutely trusts in Mrs. Norris and thinks she's great in the beginning. And then he comes to realize actually she sucks. He believes that, you know, his children, like are good upstanding moral individuals. He comes to realize that they just kind of feigned being who he wanted them to be in front of him. And that actually they have these whole private worlds that he didn't know about. I think there's actually a great line about that. So he's talking about how with Mariah and Julia, he'd always wanted to sort of counteract the Mrs. Norris and how she treated them with indulgence and flattery. He saw how ill he had judged clearly saw that he had but increased the evil by teaching them to repress their spirits in his presence so as to make their real disposition unknown to him then it later continues on he had meant them to be good but his cares had been directed to the understanding and manners not the disposition of the necessity of self-denial and humility he feared they had never heard from any lips that could profit them blah blah he had brought up his daughters without their understanding their first duties or his being acquainted with their character and temper But yeah, so he comes to realize that, like, yeah, he just doesn't know his daughters at all and hadn't raised them properly. Uh, Similarly, Tom's just been given to indulgence and, like, nothing he's done has been good enough to counteract that. He's like, Edmund's fine, but whatever. And, I mean, like, even just, like, his choice in in Lady Bertram as a wife, we've barely mentioned her because she's not really a character because she doesn't do much. (laughs) She's very concerned about her pug, which, you know, I empathize with. Uh, I, too, am concerned about her pug at all times. It's my dog. My dog! 
And I will die if I do not have him back. You understand? But like, she's not, she doesn't run the household. She's not really helpful in his absence. Like, she doesn't really care about things. They seem to have some sort of affection, but like, is she necessarily a good choice of a wife? You know, not if you want an active partner in anything you're doing. So like, we just see that all of his judgment has been poor and horrible. And of course, you mentioned he gets possibly the most horrific scene in the book where he is just raking Fanny over the coals. Like, he is so, so horrible. I, I feel like we cannot, we must read lines from it because it is so absolutely horrible. There's one line of his that is, here we go. So he's in the middle of just being like, ah! Mm-hmm. For I had, Fanny, as I think my behavior must have shown, formed a very favorable opinion of you from the period of my return to England. I thought you peculiarly free from willfulness of temper, self-conceit, and every tendency to that independence of spirit which prevails so much in modern days, even in young women, and which in young women is offensive and disgusting beyond, beyond all common defense. But you've now shown me that you can be willful and perverse, that you can and will decide for yourself without any consideration or deference for those who have Surely some right to guide you, without even asking their advice. You have shown yourself very, very different from anything that I had imagined. The advantage or disadvantage of your family, of your parents, your brothers and sisters, never seems to have a moment's share in your thoughts on this occasion. How they might be benefited, how they must rejoice in such an establishment for you, is nothing to you. You think only of yourself. And because you do not feel for Mr. Crawford exactly what a young, heated fancy imagines to be necessary for happiness, you resolve to refuse him at once, without wishing even for a little time to, con- to consider of it, a little more time for cool consideration for really examining your own inclinations, and are, in a wild tooth of folly, throwing away from you such an opportunity of being settled in life, eligibly, honorably, nobly settled, as will probably never occur to you again. Blah, blah, blah. And I should have been very much surprised had either of my daughters, on receiving a proposal of marriage at any time, which might carry with it only half the eligibility of this, immediately and peremptorily, and without paying my opinion or my regard the compliment of any consultation put a decided negative on it i should have been much surprised and much hurt by such a proceeding i should have thought it a gross violation of duty and respect you are not to be judged by the same rule you do not owe me the duty of a child but fanny if your heart can acquit you of ingratitude ah it's so horrible (laughs) if i remember correctly the monologue gets cut off there because she's just crying Yes, it says, he ceased. Fanny was by this time crying so bitterly that angry as he was, he would not press the article farther. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) Sir Thomas. That was only part of the monologue, too. I skipped a good bit in the beginning and a good bit in the middle. Then even beyond that, all of his conniving to try to basically peer pressure her into saying yes to Crawford. It's gross. Yeah, yeah, it's... (laughs) As much as, like, I think that Henry shouldn't press the way he does, I do think, I don't want to have this be misunderstood. Fanny is somewhat more clear with Sir Thomas. Not entirely. She does not give all her reasons, uh, as we explained before. But she is, he sees, obviously he sees her crying like that. He sees her more insistent. He sees her slightly more aggressive. From how the book explains things, it seems Henry Crawford legitimately believes that Fanny is just, did not expect this, is shocked, and is therefore, like, uninterested. Like, she just hasn't developed those feelings. So, while I disagree with his persistence, I'm I'm slightly more forgiving of it because I'm like, 
oh, he just thinks she hasn't considered him as an option, but give her more time with him. She might come to love him. Again, not condoning this course of action, but I'm like slightly more acceptable than Sir Thomas, who sees all of this, sees her sobbing like that, sees her saying she cannot marry him. She's convinced she'll never be happy with him. Very, very firm in her refusals. And then is actively trying to manipulate her into agreeing to this marriage. Like, again, Henry is just kind of pursuing her, but he is not, I mean, he did help her brother get promoted to try and gain her goodwill, but I don't think it's a bad thing to do something nice for someone in the name of love versus, like, Sir Thomas actively trying to manipulate her and make her make this choice. You know, right. I I hope I'm I'm sort of showing the nuance there in what I believe are two bad courses of action, but one is significantly, I believe, more malicious. The other is just um, not very considerate of a woman's right or any person's right <laughs> to say no and have that taken seriously. I'm going to veer the subject a little bit here, but I yes. like all Jane Austen novels, class is a big part of oh, the yeah. of the book. What I find fascinating is that generally the wealthier the people are, the less classy, I'd say, they actually are. And that was interesting because like this book does a very good job of not running into the trap of say glamorizing the poor we spend a big chunk of the book in portsmouth in a very poor household but it it doesn't go too far to the other end where we get like poverty porn and it's just like the only solution is to be rich and wealthy the book's not saying that either and this kind of comes back to the nature versus nurture thing because we see characters who are born in poor circumstances and turn out to be good people and characters born in a different bunch of characters born in poor circumstances who they're not good people. Fanny's dad is a great example of just somebody who is completely classless. There's this feeling that gets reasserted over and over where these characters believe the wealthy characters believe that since they have money, they can't possibly have poor manners. They can't possibly be in the wrong. How could they? They're wealthy. That must mean they're good. That must mean they have class. Obviously, that's not true. And I think Sir Thomas, like being a, a lord, he, he is in some sense the, in terms of status, the most important person in this novel. And he is, would I say he's the worst one? I mean, Mrs. Norris is so f***ing annoying. Mrs. Norris really sucks. <laughs> but, like, I guess it depends how you measure it. In terms of annoyance, Mrs. Norris will win every day of the week. But in terms of actual evil done, Sir Thomas causes the most harm. Emotional harm, but also allowing the marriage of Mariah and, and Mr. Rushworth to happen. Clearly not good. I was going to point out that in the, the Norris versus uh, Sir Thomas uh, debate, mm. he's the one who enables her to have power because he is head of the household. The evils of Mrs. Norris 
are in some ways the evils of Sir Thomas, because he's the one who places her in the position to have that power. Vis-a-vis, it's all him. (laughs) (laughs) I will say, like, I think something that fans bring up, because how Mr. Crawford's proposal to Fanny is treated is also a marker of, of Fanny's class, because we see... Sir Thomas offered to end Mariah's marriage or not go through with Mariah's marriage to uh, Mr. Rushworth because he sees that she's not interested, even though that would be a highly beneficial alliance. So she has the liberty of saying no to a man who is wealthy and of good status. But in his mind, Fanny does not have that liberty. She cannot say no because she is disinterested in Mr. Crawford, you know, he's talking about like, think about your, you know, your parents, your brothers and sisters. Think of how, what this would do for him. That big part of that rant against her is how she's not considering her class. Well, it's interesting also because in Mariah's case, Sir Thomas correctly intuits that Mariah is not interested. And that's the whole reason why he asks her in the first place because otherwise why would he bother and when she affirms that she does want to go through with the marriage for all the wrong reasons but she doesn't say those reasons he ignores his intuition and just goes along mm-hmm. with it because what he what he's interested in is the money he's interested in the status that it will bring to have mr rushworth part of the family to have that wealth to be part of the family. He is driven primarily by the idea of advantage. So he assents to Mariah marrying Mr. Rushworth because that will give her, and in extension him, more advantage. And the idea of Fanny turning down Henry, despite all the benefits it would bring, is beyond his comprehension or beyond the comprehension he's willing to apply because marriage is so often described in this book as a transaction as an economic financial transaction and you know what honestly like sir thomas it's kind of fitting because if he indeed is a slave owner he's kind of objectifying his daughters and his niece in the same way because he just sees them as property as like parts of an economic transaction he's geared to look at people not as people but as means to some kind of end and what that end is is status class and wealth which is just despicable yep <laughs> completely agree. Uh, and I will say that he doesn't get a bad enough ending in the book. If we're going to talk about what people deserve. Right. But alas. Oh, the 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 theater thing. Is there anything else to say about that? <laughs> I mean, uh obviously uh, you as a theater kid in your younger life, you you are just clearly the most despicable type of person <laughs> to exist. <laughs> Uh, I don't really have much to say on the theater thing. I mean, other than I think that the big issue with it is that they're doing this play. This play is so funny. Like, did you read the plot summary? I did. I love 
ye oldie plays. Mm. I think they're wild. They're just some of the plots in them, I'm just like, I mean, I'm aware that like our soap operas have the exact same plots. So it's not like we lost the wildness of this, but it's just like, this was ye oldie soap opera and it's so fun. But like, there's this plot where like this woman, she bore a son for the, the Baron because he promised to marry her, but then he married someone else and now she's destitute. <laughs> and, you know, it's this whole plot where, like, eventually his, like, wife died and there were other mysterious circumstances, but now he's got to marry this woman and also his daughter is in love with a clergyman and there's just, there's goings-ons. And I think, too, wait, okay, do you, who did Henry play in the, in the play again? I believe he played the Baron. He was acting opposite of Mariah as Mariah's love interest, right? That's the thing. I think he plays Frederick, so I think he acts opposite Mariah as her son. That's what I'm trying to remember. Oh. Because they talk specifically about how it's in Act 1 is the scene they keep rehearsing, and Act 1 is the scene between Agatha and her son, Frederick, which I was like, that's just f- oh you know you know let's talk about incest (laughs) but i will say the play also leads to the great line and it it, in the modern context this has a different meaning so um mary is gonna play Ah, amelia who in the play is in love with a clergyman and they haven't cast who's gonna play the clergyman yet and she goes well sorry Gonna take a second. Two thousand years later. I found it. You found it? Yes. Yay. Mary's asked, uh, blah, blah, blah. And she says, my good friends, you are most composedly at work upon these cottages and alehouses inside and out. But pray, let me know my fate in the meanwhile. Who is to be Anhalt, who's the love interest for the character she's playing? What gentleman among you am I to have the pleasure of making love to? Yes. <laughs> Which is very funny in a modern context. I think suggestive even in this context. Indeed. Because <laughs> obviously she's talking about like pretending to you know, have, yeah, have a romantic relationship with. But I think still very suggestive and kind of does speak to the inappropriateness of them putting on this this play to have, you know, people who are not married, unmarried young people <laughs> in in such situations. I mean, Mariah is going to be pretending to be someone who had a son out of wedlock. Mm. And she's going to be flirting with her son. <laughs> <laughs> not that, like, that's actually in the play, but that is, that's just what they're doing in the meanwhile. <laughs> it's very funny. They keep rehearsing that scene over and over and over <laughs> to the point that Mr. Rushworth is like, I don't understand what more they need to do to get ready for this part (laughs) it's it's all shady business yeah Uh, so actually i did run across something unrelated to mansfield park uh while we were reading this but it was about jane austen and i guess i guess there are people out there being like jane austen is so sexless and like (laughs) i gotta tell you (laughs) sometimes these books are all about sex indeed the mariah and mr crawford thing is one of those moments where it's like yep it's not because of their deep emotional mental connection. And I think the book plays that up too, because we don't actually see, like it's never described how they're rehearsing. We just hear that they keep on rehearsing. Mm-hmm. The implication is just kind of left there. And our imaginations can supply the raging 
horniness of their interactions. <laughs> yes. And I will say that in the 2000 adaptation, there's a scene that, that has them rehearsing and then totally making out. <laughs> that just puts it on the screen. Uh, God, I will say, again, I can't really recommend that adaptation, but the casting in it is superb because the guy playing Henry Crawford and the woman playing uh, Mariah are both, they both do a great job. And I think that it's also important to note that like, I think it's important to see who we see having conversations in the book Mm. because uh, another article I read pointed out that, again, of all the Jane Austen novels, this is the one that spends the most time away from its heroine with other characters. There's quite a few scenes where we aren't with Fanny. So I think it's interesting which of those scenes we get to see and which of those we don't. We don't get to see a lot of Henry and Mariah talking. Like, I think we actually see them exchange more than like a couple lines of dialogue very few times mm-hmm. we're not seeing their discussions which is totally in opposition to edmund and mary who we see talking all the time we're constantly seeing them talking because that's what their connection is about it's not necessarily a, i mean there is a physical aspect to it obviously but like a lot of it is a mental thing for them versus like yeah henry julia henry and mariah we do not see them talking they do not converse <laughs> And I think that's significant because it's about sex. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I cut you off when I felt like you were about to be really profound. Oh, no, I, I I don't have anything more profound to say. I just I feel like this book. And this is why, to me, it's better than Pride and Prejudice, because it's more emotional. It's not that it's drama, less drama, because if anything, there's ton more drama in this book than Pride and Prejudice. But there's more focus on the nuances of everyone's emotions. Like I said, I had to stop reading this book and look up spoilers because I was so (laughs) emotionally invested. (laughs) Yeah. and, And compelled by the narrative to be like, God, please, God, you know, it's the, the office clip. Yes. <laughs> you know, that's all I really want from the stories I read and consume is to feel drawn in in that way. And I, and I think Fanny, I mean, she's very rational, but there there's a emotionality about her. At least at this moment, I can't really think of another example of someone that that we just see so much of their emotions playing out working with their emotions. I just, I love that. It's so cool. This book is so good. Yeah. I'm just really pleased because I, because this is a controversial yes. uh, book. I was a little, a tad bit worried going in that you were going to be like, bah, Fanny, bah, <laughs> this book. I, I didn't, think you would necessarily but it it was a concern you know we have generally very different opinions indeed and so how how was i to know for sure but i'm so pleased that you liked it so much and got so much out of it especially because i do feel like you know even after going back and rereading it and thinking about what drew me to this book and, and being able to come to a few conclusions i still think so so much of my attachment to this book is, as you kind of said, this like deep 
I think this book has such a deep emotional ache to it. I think it aches. Yeah. And you feel that from Fanny, and I think you can't help aching with her. And I think that so much of my response to this book, both when I was younger and now, is the melancholy, <laughs> the the bitter sweetness of like feeling all of Fanny's feelings, but also getting emotionally invested in, in these other characters in the Crawfords. The triumph of the ending, but also the bittersweetness of it, you know. You go from aching for Fanny to aching for Mary, and I just... Oh, I love it. I love... I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, too. I'm worried that any future Jane Austen just will not... Like, this has ruined <laughs> the rest of Jane Austen for me, because how can you reach no. these heights? But who knows? But I guess uh, to close this episode, you suggested that you might do a ranking <laughs> of Austin novels. Oh, I don't know if you still want to do that. Oh, no, I just meant more in terms of the the Pride and Prejudice versus mm. Mansell's Pregnant. I have a really hard time ranking Jane Austen. But I, you know what? I will give you this much, which is that for me, Pride and Prejudice, Mansfield Park and Persuasion are definitely my top three. And which one is number one? Really depends on my mood uh, and what I'm currently looking for in a book. Mm. And I should also probably reread Northanger Abbey because I only read it once. was like I did not like that experience, but I'm told that it is better on second read once you know what you're getting into. But uh, no, sorry. <laughs> I do not have a, a Jane Austen ranking. And I suppose what you have read other Jane Austens. Yes. You just read them back when you thought you didn't like Jane Austen. Well, it's not that I thought I didn't like. I didn't like Jane Austen at the time. But why do you want a ranking for me? <laughs> well, I was going to be like, well, you can't rank because it's just two. But then I was like, oh, right. You have actually read more. Well, I can't really rank them because I don't remember the other ones very well. So, I mean, it's Mansfield Park all the way, baby. Yeehaw. We're basically doing what Mansfield Park does as a book. We are, you know, Fanny has been so downtrodden, <laughs> so underappreciated, and we are are elevating her and showing that we should appreciate her. Read this f***ing <laughs> book. Buy it through our bookshop.org <laughs> affiliate link, because that would be nice to us, Morgan and me. That's how you can appreciate us. <laughs> Give us money. Uh, all right. Well, the next episode is going to be a reader or list listener <laughs> suggestion. It is the Scottish play. It's Macbeth. <laughs> So, uh, stick around when we talk about the bard next time. Blah, blah, blah. Like, subscribe, yada, yada. We'll see you next time. Hasta la vista. On the line. She wears high heels, I wear.